How are y'all doing tonight? Uh, <laughs> thank you. Well, if we haven't met, my name is Trayvon Smith. I'm one of the young adult pastors on staff, and uh, I'm so excited to share with you tonight. But as usual, as I was preparing for this message tonight, I couldn't help but just think through how can this apply in my own personal life. And it reminded me of a dear time in life when I was in college. Uh, I was actually a college wrestler uh, not so long ago, but uh, it was one of the most humbling things I had ever done in my life. It was so hard uh, day in and day out, but also it was so humbling. Like it, it's a combat sport. Like when you walk away, you know whether you were better or not. Like there's no in between, there's no teammates. Uh, it's pretty clear. But I also love that just athletics in general has a way of bringing balance in humility. Unless you're say one of the goats, uh, for those of you that don't know, just greatest of all time. So when we think through it, you may have Tiger Woods, who's the goat of golf, right? We have Tom Brady for football. And then some of you, like basketball, might be a toss-up. Uh, most say Michael Jordan. Some would argue LeBron James. But unless you're one of those guys, it's extremely unlikely that you are going to go through uh, an athletic career without running into a moment where you are just completely humbled. And so I'll never forget my junior year. The season started off incredible. Like we, we had our open tournament. I felt like I wrestled really good. I thought like, all right, this is the year. Like I finally feel like things are going well. And then we get to our first head-to-head uh, -head duel and we wrestle OU. And as you can see up there, the guy I had to wrestle was none other than a guy named Cody Brewer. And I went into this match on a high. I'm like, hey, I've been able to take down almost anyone that I've faced. So I'm like, hey, like, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to prove that I can hang with the best. And boy, did it unfold so quickly. Because I got in that match, and I'll never forget, I go in for a takedown, and we get into a scramble. I feel good. I come up, and my coach is like, hey, that's what you need. Like, stay at it. And then for those of you that don't know wrestling, this is how it goes. You score two ways. You take someone down. So when you're on your feet, you strategically find a way to take them off their feet and get them on the mat. The other way is as you're on the mat, you take them against their will and turn them to their back. And those are the two ways that you score points. And keep in mind, all this takes place in a matter of seven minutes. You have a three-minute period to begin and then two two-minute periods. And so I go out into this match, and like I said, we get into this first scramble, and then it was like I blinked, and it was over. And it didn't happen in my favor. This man took me down against my will over and over to the point where he teched me. And if you don't know wrestling, a tech is when someone beats you by more than 15 points. And no matter where you're at in the match, at this point, the ref calls it. He's like, hey, there's no hope for you. You're not in this match. Like, he's basically saying, I'm going to mercy rule you out of this. And that happened to me. It was the most humbling thing of a guy literally taking you down and then willfully letting you up so that he can work whatever else he wants to. Like when I say, <laughs> you walk away from that moment and the way I'm laughing now was not the way I looked then because it was just like, what just happened? Like it, it just stripped me. But I remember just how in the midst of my athletic career and out of wrestling, I can think through how many times, depending on my performance, how if things were going really well, I could match myself to who was across from me 
and in comparison to them, I'd say, I'm pretty good. My self-esteem was so high, I'm like, I'm feeling myself. But then there's also those lows of when you lose a match like that, it's pretty hard to have an ego. It's pretty hard to boast of yourself when you just got mercy ruled out of a match. And so the only saving grace is that the guy that I wrestled also did this to 21 other people that year and went on to win a national title, and he was the 2015 D1 national champion. And so I say that to get a little bit of credit back of, I wasn't that bad, he was just that good, <laughs> okay? But again, I think about it of my self-view was so caught up in how well I could compare my performance or myself to those around me. Even though I had the caliber and the title of a college athlete simply by the fact that I had a scholarship, I was on the team, it didn't matter. Because when I looked across at someone else, I'd either say, I don't belong here, or I do. I'd say, I have the value that I'm in the right place, or maybe I'm not. And I continued on in this battle. And then I think about this story matches so well because I've walked through the same thing in life of being humbled many times in view of life. And so tonight, I wanna to teach through Romans 12, uh, verses three through eight. And it's gonna be the follow-up of immediately what took place after what Andy preached on last week. And so I'd love to just start there, and I'm gonna read what he uh, went over last week, and we're gonna just flow straight through it. And so last week, he read Romans 12, verses one through two. And it says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is. And so then it continues into what we're gonna cover tonight. And it says, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. So if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy. And just to give you a note, because prophecy isn't something that we talk about a lot now, uh, a simple definition of New Testament prophecy is Holy Spirit-empowered encouragement. It is speaking or confirming God's word to God's people to build up the church. And so then it continues on, in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. And if it is to lead, do it diligently. And finally, if it is to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. And so there's so much to unpack there, but the first thing that I wanna point out tonight is that Paul asks us to humbly evaluate ourselves. Humbly evaluate ourselves. In verse three, Paul says, by the grace given to him that he has been humbled and that we should humble ourselves in light of that same grace and mercy. 
Not thinking too high, but also eludes to or too low of ourselves. Paul is saying that the reality of what Christ has done for all of us should be a sobering thought to renew our minds in light of God's mercy. And so I just think of what, what does it mean in sober judgment? And so I'm not gonna act like I'm too holy to know what sober versus the opposite is. But if you don't know, it's like sober is clear-minded. And so the opposite of that is that through something in your life, you're being distracted. You have a distorted view and you are not seen clearly. And so what he's saying is, in light of God's mercy, in light of all that he's done for you, let's, let's drop the view that we've had of the world and everything around us, and let's look at this very clearly. He's saying God's mercy should, should structure your entire mindset right there. And so it brings back what Andy talked about last week, and that's Romans 3.23, verse 24. And it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And so it's so important to remember the context of what Paul is saying right now in Romans. Because if you go back and read Romans 1 through 11, there's so much that Paul is unfolding in the discourse of the Roman church. There's three particular things that they believed. One was that God's grace of salvation was an excuse to just keep sinning. I can keep sinning because God's grace is gonna keep covering me. The second thing is that they had this dispute between Jews and Gentiles, God's chosen people and those that came afterwards, and they believed that as Jews, they had a birthright into salvation. That was what they needed. And then the third thing was that they had this illusion of a works-based faith that I can repay what was done on the cross by how much I work. And so my sin matched with how much I do will end up matching and I have this salvation. And Paul has used 11 chapters to say that all of you have been saved equally by God's mercy alone. He's saying you can argue over all these things, but at the end of the day, it's one thing that has covered you and that is God's mercy. And so, there's power in that statement because I think of this. That means each and every one of us has the same value. The same price was paid for me, that was paid for you, and that was paid for every other believer. When Jesus went to the cross, he said, hey, this is the value of each and every one of them, that I'm gonna go to the cross because I love them that much. And he didn't say I love them or him or her because of what they do, because of what they bring, or anything else. He simply said, because I created you, because I made you, I know what's in you, and because of that, I have set the value of saying you are worth me going to the cross and dying for you. And so it's important that we know we have the same value. The same price tag that's on my shirt is on your shirt. Like there should be no difference when we look around and say, well, I'm better than you or them. Because he's like, if we're being honest, everybody in here has been mercy ruled in life. Because it says that all of us have fallen short in sin and yet he has gone to the cross to cover all of us. And so we already lost. And then he came in and covered us. There's nothing to boast about when you've already been covered in that. 
And so I think of this. Where does this, where does this lie of a differing value amongst God's people arise? Where have we been deceived to think higher or lower of ourselves amongst God's people? And the thing I've, I've realized is that very often it's comparison. Today we live in a world where it's so easy for me to look at your life in the limited view that I have and say, hey, they're doing so much better than me. And then on the flip side, we see some and we find self-pity and we're like, man, I'm not that bad. We look at social media all the time and we get this, this crafted image of someone who's smiling and maybe they have their Bible up and we're like, man, I wish that I could just walk my life out like them. And what we don't see are the private tears and the struggle that comes with that. And so we're constantly comparing, not even knowing fully what we're comparing to. And so how do we unfold this? I think the first thing is realizing which one do you have? Is it a high self-esteem? when we are thinking too high of ourselves, at some level, it stems from comparing ourselves to those around us. Maybe the gifts that you have, the abilities and skills that you have, have been praised for whatever manner. Maybe it's garnered you fame. Maybe it's adoration of whatnot. And at some point, you looked around and said, you know what, I must really be a special kind of something. There's something about me that God must have loved me because he gave me this little bit of extra. Or maybe it's even that, hey, I'm so good. I've, I've built this for myself. Look at what I've done. And we've gotten this boast of, do you see this? Do you see what I've done? Do you see what they've done? How, how do you not love me? And I think of this. I can do this so well. I must be different. But then there's also a false low self-esteem where some of us, we still have this high view of ourselves, but it just shows up a little different. It looks a little like this. Man, I'm so great, why doesn't anybody else see it? I am so good, like if only they knew what was hiding right here, they would treat me different. The world would be so different. And I think of this, it's a pride of what we can achieve instead of a measure of what we have received. The sobering thought is that I'm only as good as what was done for me on the cross. I didn't deserve it. And so I'm reminded of this. I challenge you to go and read Isaiah 14 later. And in this passage, it will paint the picture of where we see the fall of Satan. And it's a very detailed story of how he looked upon God and he looked upon himself and said, I should be that. I should be better or greater than that of the creator. And he attempted to go and make that happen. He tried to take it into his control and ultimately his pride led to his fall. And so what does that look like in our lives? It's when we constantly try and take control and make things happen that sometimes just seems to go against everything. It's where we're constantly fighting against what God has revealed, God's will, and we're like, no, this is what I'm gonna do. Or maybe it's just saying, hey, I'm gonna be my own God. I'm not gonna listen to anything that anyone has to say or any guidance. I'm gonna live my life strictly for me. And the result has already been laid out for us. 
There's been so many that have done it before us. But then there's also this low self-esteem, thinking you're not as valuable as those around you. When you look out and say, I can't do what they do. I'll never be like them. And for me, the sobering thought should be, who are you to tell the creator who he said is valuable that he is wrong? If he looked at you and said that you are made in his image, that you are valuable, who are you to look him in the eyes and say, no, you're wrong. I don't see it. I don't feel it. Because it says that you are alive in Christ. He has set your value at the price of the blood on the cross. So don't you dare get stuck looking at others and allow that to make this image in your head that you are not enough. You may ask yourself, why did God make me like this? And I can think of so many people that I've heard say this. And I'd say this, remember his word says that he has placed something in you that is good, something of value. His word says that you are made in his image. I love that they went over Psalms 139 because it is a beautiful picture of being fully known. Just a few lines out of it, it says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And if you continue and read that Psalm and really look at it, he's saying he knows your innermost thoughts. He knows the things that you carry that have the most shame. He knows the things that you carry that no one else knows. And yet he still said, I love you enough. You're still valuable enough that I died for you. Is that not enough? Is it not laid out plainly that you are valuable? And so as I continue on, I just think of this, we are the same value, but we are intentionally different. In accordance with what has been trusted to us. So if we continue on, we go to verse four. And it says, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. So the, the second thing I want to point out tonight is that we are asked to see that we are one body. We are asked to see that we are one body, but we are one body with many functions. Paul uses the imagery that we are a body with many members that don't all function the same. And so I, I couldn't help but just think of this. Like, we all know how our body works. But have any of you just woke up in the middle of the night, pitch black dark, and just stumbled around and stubbed your toe? Like, do some of y'all understand my pain? Like, truly. Like, I don't know about you, but it, it's definitely brought a signal all the way up that what came out of my mouth at times, I'm not proud. Like, I'm gonna just be honest with you. It, it brings pain. And so what does that tell me? That my toe belongs to my entire body. Like if you get an infection, let's say you get an ear infection or whatever else, does your body not go and fight for the entire body? It sends symptoms throughout you. You get a fever where you start to burn those things out. And it's because your body is saying, hey, this one part is important. I have to protect it. Your body works together. Each body part in its own unique way. 
your heart, your lungs, your hands, they all do different things, but they are vitally important. A body hurts when other parts are not functioning. In the same way that if someone is close to you, that you're in relationship with, do you not hurt with them? Do you not feel their pain? There's a reason for that. As a body, we should feel that. We should be so intertwined that when someone in here is hurting, we hurt with them. But in the same manner, when things are going well, we celebrate with them. When someone's life has changed, we should celebrate. And so I think of this, if you hurt your knee, the body can't get around as well. There are so many things that have to function well. There are parts of your body that we don't even know the full function of the appendix, but we know if it ruptures, it can kill you. We don't know exactly what it does, but it's there for a reason. And when it doesn't function, you can die. Like, I don't know about y'all, but when it gets cold, my hands are real important. Why? Because I get ashy. Like, my ankles, my knees, like, I get ashy. And I love the fact that I can put some lotion in my hands, I can get it, and I can go to work. I can get rid of the ashiness on my arms, my knees, wherever. Because I ain't trying to be out in the streets looking bad. I'm just being honest. But what does all this mean? It means your uniqueness is intentional in the same way that every body part is intentional. John 3.34 says that Jesus was the only one who has been given the full measure of the Spirit. So that means he is the only one that has the capacity of unlimited gifts. All the rest of us have been given a different variety of combinations of how it's gonna be intertwined within us. But it's good that we are not all the same. It's a reminder that we need each other. We're designed to be used together. So much goes into the body functioning well. I look at this, tonight alone, there are so many pieces that maybe you don't even know took place, that someone had to use their gift to make this a great experience. Our Tuesday team had to express the, the skill of hospitality, of hosting the room. There is a custodian that at some point came in and used just the heart of service to clean up the floors, to make things ready. There are people within this church body that had to give generously so that we can afford the equipment so that the tech team in the back that many of you don't even know their names can operate so that all of this can come together. There is prayers that happen in a meeting that come to intercede this room before you ever step foot in it. There are so many pieces at work of the gifts of the body of Christ that come together just to make one moment happen. And so know that you are significant. Know that what is inside of you is valuable. I think of this in a church, sometimes we can elevate some gifts that are more visible. And in my own life, I'm so thankful that, that what you see isn't the full value. If you don't know my story, at one point when I was in college, I lived a life completely of this world. I slept around, I drank, I partied, and I found myself miserable. And then at one point, I'll never forget, I sat there at a party and a girl that I became friends with who deeply cared about me, she was compassionate. She continued to encourage me even though my life looked nothing like that of a, of a believer. She was patient with me and continued to invite me to church. And one day at a party, finally at my lowest of lows, I said yes. And then I think of this, the next morning when she came, I had no intentions of going 
She expressed more patience, but then on top of that, diligence. Because I lived in a dorm where you had to have a key card just to get into the bottom of it. And what I thought she was just gonna show up and say, all right, he's not coming down, there's no need. I lived in Draper dorm where if you jumped about seven feet in the air, you could grab an old school fire escape made out of rebar. This girl climbed up to the top, beat down my door on the third floor, drug me to Life Church on Northwest Expressway, and I'll never forget it because my life was forever changed. I heard a message that eternally changed my life, but I think of this. The role that she played in that church for many would look so insignificant because she was just a simple member. She wasn't on the, the lead team or anything else. She was simply someone that showed up but she expressed her gift of encouragement, of diligently inviting. And what took place out of that was that I eventually made it into a church to hear teaching and wisdom that led to my life change. And so you might say her role is so insignificant, but for me, her role was everything. It changed my life that if that one person didn't use what God made inside of them, then I would never be here. I would never know the grace and love of God. And so this is how the body of Christ should function. Why? Because if one does not do their job, we are not our best. If one person doesn't do their job, you may not be here. You may not know who Christ is. You may not know the greatest thing that is out there, the mercy of his salvation. You would never know that if there's somebody who invited you never did that. If there is someone who intentionally discipled you, never took the time to be patient with you. There is so much that goes into it. So don't get stuck in thinking that it only takes place with those that are on the stage, those that have found a position on a serve team. No, there is value in you that just show up and love on those around you. There is value in that. And so as I come to this final part, I think of this. Paul said to humble yourself. Then he says, see the big, bigger picture of how we are the body, not just individuals. And then he lays it out plainly. His final encouragement, and it'll be my last point for tonight, and that's that we are asked to use our gifts. We are asked to use our gifts. So if we get to verse six, it says we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. One thing I have to say about this list is that Paul has many lists. He puts one in 1 Corinthians 12. He also puts another one in Ephesians 4. And I tell you this because this is not an all-encompassing list. The worst thing you could do is look at this and say, I don't check one of these boxes. I must not have a gift. He has intentionally laid out different ones to show you that there are a variety. And so I challenge you, go throughout scripture and see what, what gifts are listed out there. But also, what is it that you see presented in front of you. But there's one thing in this list, as he lists out various gifts, in each one of them, he backs it up by saying, if 
You identify your gift, use it. If you know what your gift is, use it. 1 Peter 4.10 says, as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I love that it says good steward. A good steward is someone that has been entrusted to manage something well. You are given something and you are expected to do something with it. Not just hold it selfishly, not to hide it away, but to do something with it. And so I can't help but be reminded of a story that Jesus told during this time. And it's in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. And it's the parable of the talents. And in this, Jesus is talking to the disciples and laying out uh, this thought. And there's three people in this story. And in it, it says that their boss has distributed different, different amounts to each of them. So one has 10 talents, one has five, one has three. I don't remember the exact number, so don't, don't blame me on the quote, but they all had a different amount given to them. And it says he left and called them to be good stewards of it. And so when he returned, the one who had 10 had multiplied it. The one who had five had multiplied it. And yet the one with three had buried it. And he's the only one that got reprimanded. Because he, the master comes back and says, all that I've given to you, and you did nothing with it. I trusted you to do something with this, and you sat on it. Your gifts are to be used. In light of God's mercy, but there will be a day where we will have to account before the Lord for what we did with what we got. It says it very plainly in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, that one day we will stand before the Lord and have to give an account for what we did with the life that we lived. And I can't help but think that somewhere in that account, how we use the gifts that were given to us, the unique design given to us, will be called into account. Are you doing something with yours? Have you used it? Maybe you don't know what it is. And I challenge you to get curious. Go find out. For me, as I embarked on this journey of faith, all I did was start serving. I served at a church. I learned that I was not good with managing middle school kids. That was not my gift. But then I learned that I had a passion for athletics. So I served at a sports camp. I learned what it was like to simply give. I was given the opportunity to speak. You know, I got a D in speech class in college. And now I'm up here on stage. Why? Because someone encouraged me and showed me that I had this skill, that it could be used for God's kingdom. And so I'm not telling you to just start filling yourself and say, hey, I'm supposed to go do this. I know that's what God's called me to do. Like one way you can confirm that is go to those that know you, know you best. Go to someone that has wisdom that can speak into your life and say, you know what? I see this. Hey, have you ever tried this? And then on some levels, just find a way to get involved. Go and serve. 
It doesn't have to be in a specific position. Like I shared in my story, she, she didn't have a role in the church. She was just simply somebody who was bought into what she believed in. She believed that the most valuable thing in her life was knowing God. So what did she do? She left here and continued to share that with everyone else that she met. Hey, do you know God? Then come and find out. That was her role. She used her gift of encouragement. She used her gift of patience, of evangelism, without any specific role. You don't need a role to be used. But it's important that you know you have a gift. Use it. And so as we get ready to just end the night, kind of like last week, Andy just changed it up. Usually we do a so what. And we really wanna use this, this time as more of a reflective time. As the goal of this series is to be real practical, of like actually apply it to our lives. And so for this therefore time, I have just a couple things that I challenge you to ask the Lord. One, take some time. We're gonna pray, ponder, and just listen. But one, what is the lie you're believing about God, how God has made you? When you think of yourself, do you think of yourself better than all of God's creation? Not thinking in light of the mercy of what he has done for you. Do you maybe think that, hey, God messed up. I know he says everyone has value, but I don't. Why has he made me like this? What is the lie that you're believing? Second thing, ask the Lord, what are your gifts? Because before anyone else can reveal that to you, it is so important that we learn to go before God and simply let him speak to our lives. And then the third thing is this, what biblical truth would God reveal to you that would change your view? That would allow you to see that in light of God's mercy, your life is set apart. You are designed uniquely for a reason. And so I just wanna challenge you for a minute just to sit and pray. And I gotta say something, I don't know if we addressed this last week, if you've never just sat in silence and in prayer, it can be uncomfortable. And sometimes the myth is that I heard nothing, God must not work. God must not be active in our lives. And the truth is sometimes in the silence, it can be the most powerful thing. Not everyone is gonna feel something. Not everyone is gonna have an immediate response. But what is important is your obedience to trust that he can to trust that he will in his own timing. And so even if it's uncomfortable to you, but you just sit in it, have a conversation with God and ask him what there can be to be revealed in you.